afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the Influential You podcast. I'm Josh Domingo, senior faculty member here at Influential You and your co-host for this weekly podcast. At Influential You, we teach you how to take charge of your career and amplify your professional influence. Since 2009, we've helped thousands of business owners, entrepreneurs, and executives become more influential, more rewarded, and more you. Today, I'm speaking with Sterling Hawkins, a Fundamentals of Transaction and a Mechanics and Practice graduate here at Influential U. And he learned that maybe he didn't know everything when it came to business, so he might need a team, or as he calls it, a street gang in his brand new book, Hunting Discomfort, which is available now on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and fine bookstores near you. Sterling Hawkins is the CEO and founder of the Sterling Hawkins Group, has appeared in Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, The New York Times, and Forbes, and he is a sought-after keynote speaker, has spoken for TEDx Talks, and he's a friend. And I'm happy to welcome Sterling Hawkins to the Influential You podcast. Sterling, how are you, my friend? Josh, good to see you. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for such a generous introduction. It sounded great. Thank you. Well, I, I thought that at the end of that introduction, you might have more to say because I could keep going with your introduction, but no. <laughs> tell us a little bit more about yourself because you've done so many things. You've kind of been an entrepreneur and I'd love to just introduce yourself to our audience. I, I have. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life and I kind of fell into the speaking thing, believe it or not, because speaking scared the daylights out of me. Like I could not bring myself to get in front of people, but by confronting that fear, by moving through this transaction process that I'm sure we'll get into, you know, I found uh, not only do I have a tremendous business and keynote speaking alone, but have become an author. I work with all sorts of entrepreneurs, a little bit of investing here and there. And my favorite thing is, is getting on podcasts and talking with people like you. So excited for today. <laughs> Well, I know you've been really busy with your brand new book that just came out and on a so lot busy. of different podcasts. So today we're going to talk a little bit about your book, but we want to start with maybe a little meta. Maybe go take us back uh, to before you studied with us here at Influential U. And, and what was life like before you got here in, in context of what you were doing and maybe how it set you up to kind of get your book going? Yeah, well, it, it was a little bit like stumbling around in a dark room. I wasn't sure what direction to go, who to work with, how to work, how my influence worked or or didn't work for that matter. And, um, you know, I, I was relatively successful right out of the gate. I started a tech company with my dad. We sold it to a group in Silicon Valley uh, where we went on to become part of this behemoth that was like the Apple Pay before Apple Pay. Mm. And this is early 2000s and, you know, nothing like it was out there. We had a multi-billion dollar valuation and, you know, there's a couple of those companies these days. But back then there was maybe two or three that were in that stratosphere. And, you know, as you pointed to in my introduction, I really I really did think I had it all figured out. I'm like, I'm definitely the next Steve Jobs, like bring me the private jet and let's buy the island and, and let's go. Um, now. Life was not that easy. And I think it was a, a, a blessing that it wasn't. Uh, long story short, the housing market collapsed, our investment dried up, and the whole company went under. Half a billion dollars gone, Oof. believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a dark moment, not just in my career, but in my life. Like my yeah. identity was so caught up in that company that when it crashed, so did I. I go from, uh, you know, like living this dream life to a 
well, of course, I didn't have a job anymore. Eventually, I run out of cash. I go from this big, beautiful penthouse in downtown San Francisco to my parents' house, which I can tell you is not a good look in your 30s. <laughs> Um, and it, it was like I was playing out a, a sad country song. Even my girlfriend broke up with me. Like I'm hitting every <laughs> single beat of this thing. And, you know, in that dark moment, I said something to myself. Like, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know what exactly I'm going to do, but I'm going to make an impact with three words that have become very important to me, no matter what. Hmm. And in the early days, it was kind of just putting one foot in front of the other. Like, I'm going to get out of bed no matter what. I'm going to go to the gym no matter what. I'm going to call these creditors no matter what. And it started forwarding me um, in a direction. I didn't know which. And as part of uh, gaining momentum, I realized that, hey, I, I don't know it all. I mm. really do need a tremendous amount of help from many other people. And I started seeking out different kinds of programs to develop myself, right? Like, I didn't know what exactly went wrong in that whole experience but I knew that there were things that I could have done differently and mm. finding, um, well, influential you in those days, influence, influence ecology, ecology. <laughs> uh, was, was part of that. And it was really fundamental in building myself back. Wow. And now how did you get introduced to it? Who did you, I, I know you and John have a relationship, but how did you find John? Uh, that's a good question. I think it was uh, a friend of mine introduced me to him. Okay. And said, you've got to meet this guy. And, you know, I did some research on him online, checked out his background, looked at all the influence he had created. And I was like, you're right. I really do need to meet him. So I remember we scheduled a phone call. We chatted a little bit. And like the point of the phone call, I don't know what it was for him. But for me, it was like, I've got to go up to Ventura County and meet this guy. And that's what we did. I think I remember you coming into the office and I think I remember thinking, is this the new, is this our new sales guy in LA? And I remember, yeah. and you have to remember, I was about 25 pounds heavier than I am now. I was it, super You're looking great, by the way. Well, and then in walks Sterling Hawkins, you know, and I'm like, oh, I can't compete with that guy. Whoever, I'm going to learn whatever he's no. doing. It's great. So that was kind of how I got introduced to you. And then you went through the Fundamentals of Transaction program. And tell me some of the key takeaways uh, when you were studying that. And maybe it'll kind of guide us to what we talk about today. Yeah. So I told you, I got into speaking because it, it scared me. Like I intuitively knew that there was something about the things that I was fearful of, embarrassed of, scared of that I had to go through to create some results. And that, that's really the underpinnings of the book. Um, so I, I got the speaking going. I applied to speak at this conference in Singapore. Long story short, practiced incessantly, got up on stage, almost fainted. Like you ever been in a situation josh where you feel like the world's spinning and you get really hot and your hands start getting sweaty you know that feeling sterling i've got a video for you it was singing the national anthem for the lakers and the chicago bulls with no monitor wow it was that's, the scariest awesome. of my life i got all i got the dizzies and i almost passed out i don't remember if i said the rockets red glare but yeah that's that's exactly i know that feeling you got to send that to me, man. Um, <laughs> well, that, that's what this keynote was like. Uh -huh. I felt like I, I was undeserving. I had a lot of self-doubt. I wasn't sure, um, you know, if I was going to be successful. And I remember getting off the stage, kind of covering my eyes because I thought I totally bombed. Mm. Um, turns out the conference director really liked me, ended up putting me in touch with all of his conference director friends. And I had the beginnings of this keynote speaking career. 
But what I got out of Influential You was the piece of fulfillment of the keynote. Like I knew I could fulfill it, but by taking clips of me speaking, by taking um, uh, quotes of some of the things that I would say, and by gathering testimonials from the audience, I was able to take that fulfillment piece and move it up towards the top of the transaction. So before people ever engage with me to do a keynote, they knew exactly what they were going to get. And it built a, a lot of comfort. It built, built a lot of certainty inside of um, boardrooms where they're talking about who they're going to bring as, as their keynote speaker. They've got all these possibilities, all these tremendous people. And the fact that I was able to bring some of that transaction sooner into the conversation, I think helped me a lot, especially in those early days. And it, it, I found that it, the understanding the transaction cycle, which we'll put in the link, uh, if you're listening right now to the podcast, we'll go ahead and put in the show notes. You can actually see where you are in the middle of that exchange and knowing where you are is powerful because you can move to where you need to get to. And it right. sounds like that was really, it, it was increasing the speed of kind of what you could do and over and over again. Is that really how it happened? Like you could repeat and rinse? It, exactly. Like I knew the steps that we were going to go through every single time. And I might know, not know exactly how it was going to go, but I knew that every time that I wanted to get on the phone or on a Zoom with some of the audience members before the keynote to talk about what was really important to them, what mattered to them. So I could understand like what were the problems they were dealing with so at the end of the keynote, I'd be able to say, hey, here's how I delivered on the problems that you had, how we solved them or at least gave audience members a direction. So when we get to the bottom of the transaction where we're closing it out and we're having a debrief call, I can say, you know, the satisfaction metrics that I suggest we look to are here's the problems you told me you had. Here's the problems that the audience told me they had. Here's how we sold, solved them. And here's some of the feedback we've heard from the audience. So clients don't necessarily know the transaction that we're moving through, but by myself being very clear on what those moves and phases are, we've been able to kind of shepherd them along and provide a tremendous amount of value to them at the same time. Ah, it's so good. Because I mean, that, that reciprocation, that, that, that ability to be in that co-constitutive exchange with them telling them, hey, this is exactly the, what we're going to provide. Yeah. And we used to satisfaction metrics. And I'm, I'm going to tease you a little bit because during the rebrand, they now became measures, which is going to be even oh, better me. to remember. But then yeah. what you'll find is that, that that area right there, I can't wait to talk about that a little bit more with you because that uh, thing, people move too quickly to that complete stage where right. they're doing facts and judgments, but actually being able to stop them and say, no, no, we did what we said we were going to do. Right. And, and then move forward is so valuable. And I, Sterling, I love that. Um, but that's here's what's really fun about that uh, measures, satisfaction metrics. I wanted to bring up that you were one of our last people on the old podcast before mm -hmm. the big rebrand, before we went from influence ecology to influential you. Yeah. And in that time, you were helping John. So this is kind of right at the end of um, 2020. And you were helping him with TCX, uh, our, our right. transactional competence across teams. Right. Um, and in that time, John talked about the process of working with you and what it was like. Um, you identify as an inventor. So you kind of live out. in a world. Is that, is that correct? <laughs> it, 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 yeah. So, now you don't have to wonder why I thought I knew it all. <laughs> so a world of uh, subjectivity, ideas. Tell us a little bit about what it was like working with John Patterson and, and kind of creating or, or helping with the TCX program. 
Well, uh, John, from that first lunch we had, he's become one of my favorite people in the world. I love him to death. And uh, a lot of our conversations have revolved around, like, how do we handle all the uncertainty in the world from a, a corporate perspective, right? Like, it's easy for me to go into a company and we've got a lot of actionable items and inspiration and takeaways that they can grab onto and use immediately in the business, but how do we give them something that on an ongoing basis is going to give them the ability to move forward? Mm. And what we found in a lot of the research that I was doing and, and still am doing, by the way, with many clients and big companies out there, is that innovation really just happens as it happens. Often companies don't have a declared process or system around it. Mm. They're not moving through any phases or steps. What usually happens is somebody shows up at a trade show, brings back a couple ideas of some cool solutions they may have seen there, and then they share them and they meet people and they have Zoom meetings. And then, you know, 18 months go by, 24 months go by and they wonder, well, hey, how come we didn't do anything with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, there was there's no system. There's no process. There's no reason to because well, we all get really busy. And in the face of all that uncertainty, it's just easier to bury our heads and say, you know what, I'll deal with that tomorrow and then tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And well, we all know tomorrow never comes, at least the mm -hmm. way you want it to. And so what John and uh, influential do, in, influential you, I got to get used to saying that now. <laughs> uh, what, what they did that I thought was so brilliant is uh, brought the... Uh, transaction cycle into a company in a way where they could consistently move through a transaction and forward innovation on a very consistent and predictable basis. Mm. It's critical. Mm. I was just talking with a big, I'm not going to tell you who, but a big grocery company, uh, regional doing billions of dollars in sales. And they said, well, Sterling, I'm not sure about these different solutions um, in the world of payments. They're implementing some new payment tools. Sure. How can we be sure this is the right solution? And my answer was very simple. We can't be. In fact, I can almost promise you across a set of solutions in a number of years, some of those will turn out to be the wrong solution. So good. We just don't know that now. And what there is to fall back on is that transaction process. So you're forwarding it and you're making up for some of those losses by even more wins and that constant forward progression. So you can uh, make advances in your business no matter what. And I, oh, so good with the hashtag, no matter what. I will say this, uh, it's, it's so inspiring to kind of hear kind of what you were able to do with a process in place. But even last week we talked with Tyson Crandall and he was talking about how many of the people around him didn't even have a process to begin with yeah. and having a process sets you apart from everyone else in your organization, having a process for how you're going to move to get that next promotion, to do this, to do that. And so I love that you yeah. brought the process. Um, one other thing that I want to bring up uh, right before we just kind of start to talk about the book yeah. is really uh, the process of, of what you did with the book. Um, yeah. As I read the book, it said that you've been writing it for about 10 years and we in got right in it. We got right in there around like the last four or three years before book launch, if you will. Right. Uh, tell us, tell me a little bit about if, if the, the transaction cycle and the process helped with releasing your first book. Well, it's such a great setup, Josh. Of course it did. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really was uh, helpful. And I'll tell you how. Uh, 
writing a book, people have been telling me to write a book forever. And it existed not just like as a possibility, but in the world of book writing, there are so many possibilities in terms of how you do it. What kind of publisher do you do? Do you do hybrid? Do you do traditional? Do you self-publish? Do you do it through Amazon? Uh, do you need a, a ghostwriter? Do you need somebody to uh, be a writing coach? How do you brand it? Like, should it be consistent with my speaking brand? Should it be something else? So I had this world of just limitless possibilities just when it came to the single topic of writing a book. Mm. And what it took is um, I'd been speculating about this for about, like you said, 10 years and 18 months ago or so somewhere in there during the pandemic, I said, you know what? I'm avoiding the discomfort of committing to a direction here, you know, because mm some self-doubt, fear of exposure, like who's going to read this thing? Why does it matter? Like, who am I to write this book? Like all of those things. Mm -hmm. And what happened was I, I made a commitment and I had talked to a number of different publishers. And when I realized I kind of caught myself just spinning in this um, infinity loop of transactions, not forwarding anything, I called the publisher that I felt best connected with, best aligned with from a business perspective. And I said, send me the contract. Like, mm. I want to sign this contract now so I don't back out of this thing tomorrow. And I signed it that same day. And then I, I was able to really lay out with the publisher how to fulfill on that contract. You know, I had no idea how to write a book, but they helped me with all the specialized knowledge of, you know, here's the schedule you need to write on. Here's the feedback on your writing. Here's our direction in terms of marketing the book and the cover and, you know, all the things um, that go along with writing a book, which, by the way, I thought were a lot of things headed into it. And I realized now having gone through the process, it is infinitely more than I ever imagined. Like I was so naive when it came to this world. Like, thank goodness for the many, many, many people that have helped me do it. Specialized knowledge. Exactly. Uh, and now we're in the phase where, you know, we, we set out, um, it's not satisfaction metrics anymore. What is it again? Measures. Good job. Measures. We set out measures. And we said, you know, here's how many books we want to sell in pre-sale. And here's the actions we're going to take to be able to do that, right? Here's how we're going to promote it online. All of which, by the way, are transaction cycles we went through in their own right. Mm. And, you know, I can sit here today and say we've had a, a very successful launch that met the measures we were aiming for. We've sold several thousand books. We've got articles in Forbes, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, uh, tremendous reviews up on Amazon. Thanks to folks like yourself that have been through it and shared their comments from it. And I, I think most importantly, I've heard from many people that have read the book, shared the book with others and said, you know, here's what this meant to me. And I can't tell you how grateful I am. To, well, two things, to be on the other side of having finally published that book. And second, for having this transaction cycle declared that I can move through and really have some footing under me mm. as we published it. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like there was a lot of certainty, which we talk about with the, you know, kind of the inventor, like knowing exactly where we're going next. Right. Um, that probably made the process feel a lot maybe easier, less laborsome. Like, what would you, how would you describe that? Well, it, it did add some certainty, but in a very special kind of way. Like, I didn't know what the uh, writing process was going to be like exactly. Mm. But I knew that there was going to be some kind of schedule of, of work in action, right? Like doing the writing that I would have to put together. 
And so knowing like, well, it's in this world of creating schedules and deadlines and deliverables and all of that. I don't know exactly what they are, but I know that something like that is the next thing that I need to do. So good. And then, yeah. And then going back to what you committed to forced you to do it because you had that consequence in place. You were no longer intending to do it. Now you were committed to, and, and I'm just sitting there going yeah. through the book. I'm hearing it and I'm reading it. And I'm giggling to myself yeah. on the treadmill, as you know, uh, it's in between selfies That's right. laughing at some of the, the verbiage you're using. Cause I'm going, ah, oh, way to go. Like I was so, I don't know that anyone anywhere near me at the gym thought that like my brother had written this book because I was cheering for you so hard. So I, I'm going I to it. ask one more question. Then we're going to jump into the book. And that yeah. question is when, and you might've got this text today, when we were leaving influence, I'm sorry, influence ecology and coming to this one, the yeah. last thing we talked about was innovation. Yeah. And it, I could tell in the podcast, which we'll put in the notes if you're listening, so you can listen to the old podcast that we have with Sterling. You, you have this innovation and then you started talking about this innovation gap. Right. And I'm wondering how close that got you to hunting discomfort or did that come? Because it feels like to me, from reading the book, finding where those innovation gaps really starts with figuring out where it hurts. I'll stop there and just see where your mind goes after I say that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, just to lay out the innovation gap a little bit more, uh, most of us personally and professionally, by the way, as an individual or as a company are on this path of incremental improvements. You know, we're going to make 5% more next year, or we're going to cut uh, expenses by 10%, or I'm going to lose five pounds. Like, I'm all for that, but it just doesn't create meaningful difference is it doesn't create any kind of transformation until you're decades down the line. Again, I'm all for it, but the gap is between where you are now, the path you're on, and the potential that you could be as an individual or as a company. And that potential, I can tell you from a, a lot of work with leaders and companies, is infinitely more than where you sit today and probably infinitely more than where you think you'll be tomorrow. Mm. Now, the, the transaction cycle is a, a big piece in that, right? Because as you can continually create a process of improvement or a process of innovation or a process of, of growth, like you're going to start taking some bigger steps forward. But the biggest piece in, in the gap between where you are today and the potential of where you could be I found resides in the world of biology as influential. You would talk about it mm. specifically. The results you have are determined not by how bad you want it, not by how much money you have, not by who, you know, but they're determined by the discomfort that you avoid. Mm. And when you can first recognize that discomfort and then move through it, you'll create um, transformational results that are, uh, well, I'll say it like this, that are impossible to see from where you sit right now. Wow. Uh, and I don't want to give away the book, but there's a lot of that in here and we're going to, there is, don't, you, you don't give the give whole them, thing away, but we'll the give way. them all. Don't give it all away on this podcast. But I will say, if you're just joining us, uh, my name is Josh D'Amigo, a co-host of the influential you podcast. We're here with Sterling Hawkins and we're about to talk about his brand new book, hunting discomfort looking at the right camera make sure you get it Got it is an amazon you can get it all over the place if you have a nice bookstore near you and they don't have it call and ask why 
Now, in a world where scientists and researchers are finding ways to eliminate discomfort, Sterling teaches us to hunt this discomfort. That's right. He says in his book, discomfort is fundamentally necessary and denying it or attempting to avoid it leaves you at a severe disadvantage. What's right. that all about, Sterling? Yeah, I feel like we should have a little like guitar interlude here, especially <laughs> with you. <laughs> next time on the next podcast I'm on, we'll get a little guitar going. If you don't know, Josh is a phenomenal guitar player and singer, by the way. Um, but to answer your question, in all seriousness, the biggest question I get with this book and in my keynotes, at least prior to the keynotes, because I answer it in the keynotes, is Sterling, you got to look at my bank account, look at my relationships, look at my business, look at all these things. I don't need to hunt discomfort. I'm surrounded by it. <laughs> it finds me. <laughs> right. I mean, we've got pandemic fallout. We've got tech mm -hmm. disruption. We've got supply chain issues. We've got a war in Europe. We've got mm -hmm. staffing shortages. I mean, the list is just endless for all of us, not at a professional level, but I think it's probably safe to assume that many of us experience that on a personal level with more needs from our communities and our families as well. And my answer to that question is always the same. If you're surrounded by discomfort, you are not hunting it. You're living with it, which mm. is a drastically different thing. The point of hunting discomfort, the point of finding more discomfort is somewhat paradoxically to free you from it. When you hunt discomfort, it's no longer a limiting factor that's gating your results. Ah, oh, so good. Uh, it's, it's like the book's coming to life. It's 3D all of a sudden for me. So I'm going to ask the next question that you might really enjoy. Uh, yeah. You write, most of us prefer to stick with the particular and familiar discomfort we already have yeah. rather than face the discomfort of something new. Now, That's I right. love this because John Patterson says this all the time. I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to make you feel really bad. Because yeah. that's when change happens. So talk a little bit about how much discomfort we become familiar with and accept and what it takes to shift it to something that we actually do something about. Well, uh, John's exactly right. Turns out University of um, Yale University, sorry, has found that when you're uncomfortable, you learn up to four times faster. It's like a biohack to being better. Now, that's something I wish I knew when I was in university because I'd be like sitting on a bed of nails in the front row or something as opposed to zoned out trying not to fall asleep in the back. <laughs> but, but recognizing just that fact that when you're a little uncomfortable, when somebody's giving you tough feedback or making you feel bad or, or maybe you failed in a particular area, getting into that discomfort instead of running away from it, denying it, pretending it didn't happen, getting into that discomfort is a superpower that will help you learn, improve, and grow up to four times faster. Now, that's one thing. The other thing is this research I found out of the University of uh, Michigan that I thought was just fascinating. They found uh, in doing some research on discomfort, you know, my favorite topic, that uh, when they were doing brain scans and body scans of people going through discomfort of various types, physical discomfort, you know, maybe they broke a, a bone or something, emotional discomfort, they broke up with a loved one or lost a job, mental discomfort, and on and on. Um, no matter what kind of discomfort somebody was experiencing, the body and brain processed it almost the same. Hmm. So much so that you can take acetaminophen like Tylenol or Advil and it will help you with emotional pain, believe it or not. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Wow. 
that's not a biohack by the way for any yeah. listeners like that's that's not like a suggestion from sterling like i Dr. feel sterling bad did not say that on our podcast <laughs> exactly so like that's not medical advice i'm not a doctor all the all the disclaimers no. but what we can do with that and and this is a very important step to take from that information mm -hmm. is to say if um how we meet discomfort is the same everywhere we can grow our capacity to deal with it anywhere. You know, everybody knows if you want to build your biceps, you go to the gym. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to not just grow your resiliency, but your ability to create breakout transformational results, you hunt discomfort. Yeah. There's just no other way. And the book is essentially a catalog of how to do just that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to quote I'm going to quote you to you. Again, a couple times probably because I, I just kept yeah. underlining things. Waiting for discomfort to find you is like waiting to work out until you happen to be right. at the gym. And I, that, I mean, when you're reading it at the gym, it's kind of funny, uh, especially some of the people at the gym that don't know how to use uh, those weight machines. Um, and you're yeah. sitting there going, oh, boy, they really need to figure out how to get more uncomfortable on those machines. Uh, now, this is really good. We teach commitment as a contract. And, and it's more than just an intention. And yeah. I see that you have me sign a contract in the very first chapter that I'm That's going right. to read the book. Uh, what do you have to say about the power of contracts? You talked about it a little bit earlier. Tell me a little bit more about why you, you inserted that in the book to have them hit, sign a contract that they would complete the book. Yeah. Well, I found that that was something very powerful for me. You know, I, I maybe learned it at Influential You, but I experienced it as true when I signed the contract to speak in Singapore. Mm. You know, there were plenty of times in the weeks and months leading up to it where I would have frankly liked to back out. I didn't want to do it. The discomfort was just getting too much, especially in the weeks like right before when I'm not sleeping and I'm worried about it, I'm having heart palpitations like would have been way easier. Just be like, you know what? It's not for me. I'm not feeling well. Find somebody else. But I had signed a contract and it called me into action in a way that was stronger than my feelings. And when your commitments are stronger than your feelings, you're guaranteed mm. to have breakthrough results. Mm. And that's why I put it in the book. So as you're reading it, you can say, yeah, life's going to get busy. It's going to get hectic. You're going to maybe misplace the book. You got to deal with family things, work things. But there are things in this book that I know will fundamentally make a massive difference for you and your business. Oh. And as, a, as an offer, to you as the reader, I say, you know, sign this contract. It's not legally binding, of course. You're not like sending me a copy. But you as making a declaration, a commitment to you can be powerful in going through that book. And it's going to call you through the exercises and call you through reading it when it's easier to go in another direction. And just wow. like we were saying in, in building that discomfort muscle, like each time you sign a contract and fulfill on it and you go through that discomfort, you get stronger. So this is maybe the first step for some people. It's, it's so fascinating. The, the things that you just said, I'm sure there's going to be a clip that we're going to steal and put it in the front of the podcast eventually. Cause it was so good in there because yeah. it's not easy. And there's a lot of coaches and a lot of speakers and a lot of people out there that goes, you know, Oh, just, if you believe it, you can do it. You actually kind of get into this a little bit because you say in the book, many people want to be celebrated Phoenix rising from the ashes, but few want to burn. And it was little right. things that the whole way. I just went, oh, Sterling has such a graph <laughs> of so many different parts of language. I'm going to move to one more part because I want to get to this yeah. before I, I, um, 
I, I really want to talk about the street teams and I want to yep. talk a little bit about how you uh, did your, it's uh, street gang. Sorry, I said yeah. street teams. Uh, we talk about um, teams and, and if you have a big dream, you need to have a really good team at influence yep. for you in the sense of many times we talk about how people exchange the yep. idea of a performer working with an inventor on the strategies or a performer working with a producer on the um, tactics, all yep. of the different combinations you can sort of get in those. In your book, you talk about a street gang and funniest joke in the entire book that the only gang that Sterling could ever be in was Boy Scouts. All right. And that was, I laughed so hard. Just I, I only lasted like three meetings for them too. It was bad. <laughs> so tell me about building your team and what you learned. Maybe, maybe a, give us a little bit about what it's like to build your team and how you did it and what your team really is like. I'd like to hear a lot more like personal, how you live the book. Yeah. Well, there were a ton of people that helped me uh, put this book together and, and looking at the different personalities of the people that I was engaged with was important, you know, especially as I was gathering feedback. But the first step I took in building my my street gang was signing that contract with the publisher. Not only was it a piece of paper, not only was it a commitment that there was no going back on. I call it uh, getting a tattoo in uh, in the book. Right. But there were people on the other end of that receiving that commitment. And there was a, a person, she runs the uh, publisher I worked with. Her name's Maggie. She's phenomenal. But she was the one that was going to hold me personally accountable to delivering on that schedule, which there were penalties for if I did not. Now, it turns out I, I found in, in some more research, and I think you probably know this, Josh, from some of your work. But when you're personally accountable, you're not 80%, not 90% but 95% more likely to achieve your goal. And every week there was a deliverable, there was a phone call, there was uh, things that I had to do. So I had a schedule I was marching through and on an incredibly fast timeline, at least from a publishing standpoint, it was that accountability in my street gang that really forwarded the entire process. Now that was one piece. Uh, another piece of the street gang that I think is really important is inspiration. Like somebody or, or something, I guess it could be, that lights that fire in you and breathes a little life into that process that you're moving through. And, and for me, it, it was my grandmother, it was folks in my family, and it was a, a close friend that you know reminded me why I was doing this in the first place, especially when things got tough and it was like the night before a big deliverable. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. I, I, I can't do this. And they reminded me, oh. You're doing this because it's important to you that not only you live courageously, but other people live courageously as well. Mm -hmm. So those two pieces came together in a really powerful way for me. Oh, and I love it. And I think it's so valuable. And it was really fun uh, to kind of put, have you have, see your spin on it yeah. and who the different people you need to have on your team is and being inspired. Holy smokes. Imagine going to a workplace where you weren't. So I've got one more question for you. Then I'll give yeah. you a little. Well, can I, can I say one more thing about the book process in the street gang? Cause I, I think this is important, especially for uh, practitioners of influential you or folks that are interested in getting involved is uh, when I finished the first draft of the book, I think it was uh, late last year, almost exactly a year ago where the first draft was finished. I put together a group of people that represented all the different personalities, and I asked them to read it and give me feedback. 
you know, I wanted the judge to read it, another inventor to read it. I wanted a performer to read it. Like I wanted all the people to read it from their different perspectives as their different personalities. So I could see, was it speaking to everybody? And the feedback from them was really critical in getting the book to the point where it is today, where I think at least parts of it will resonate with any kind of reader, because I was sure we had, you know, the data and research for the, the judges and we had the inspiring parts and we had all the things that, that would make it great. So, so I just want to, so thanks for, me I know. love that. No, thank yeah. you for that. It's like bonus material. This is fantastic. All right. Yeah. So last question, you're yeah. going to like this. And my mom put something in the chat a second ago. So y'all can see how funny she is. Uh, yeah. cause I don't like hunting. So I'm, I'm that lazy Sterling. Um, yeah. if physical surrender is, uh, I'll say it this way. If physical surrender is possible, it's only impossible unless you're Neo. When I, when I, if something is impossible, it's only impossible uh, in physics. I think that's, that's, that's right. Physics. Yeah. Exactly. Will, will you give me that? Will you give me that quote? Uh, Cause I'm, I, I miswrote it this morning or Siri didn't hear me. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know exactly what it says in the okay. book, but it, but it's something like it's only impossible if, if it's impossible by the laws of physics. Perfect. The laws I, of physics yeah. don't change. They're the you know immutable laws of the universe. How we understand them might change. Yes. But that's kind of the ultimate guide of is it possible or not? And I love that quote because when I when I turned to my family, they said, Well, what, what about the Wright brothers? And sure enough, guess what the next example is in, in your book is the Wright brothers and have making yeah. them like have a change in, in that. Tell me just a little bit about that piece of it because to me that was a really big breakthrough moment for me that i went this is a really good part of the book yeah um well according to the laws of physics it's always been possible for humans to fly we just didn't know how exactly to do it and many people especially pre Wright brothers would have said it's impossible not because it was grounded in truth and in fact and in real assessments but because nobody had ever done it before and so the Wright brothers, I don't know if you know this, but they suffered a lot of like public humiliation, people giving them a hard Ooh. time. They were thrown out of uh, certain um, social circles they were in because people looked at them and was like, this is stupid. You're working on something that's impossible. Wow. And I'm sure I, I wasn't there, but I'm sure they had to deal with a lot of discomfort, right? The discomfort of self-doubt, like are all these other people right or are we actually onto something here? They had to deal with the discomfort of exposure. You know, for years, they're working on it without any results. Like that just looks bad personally, professionally. Mm -hmm. And yet they had really built their discomfort muscles because they were able to persist through. And of course, we all know Kitty Hawk eventually took flight. It didn't fly very far, but it proved that human flight is possible. It just took hunting a lot of discomfort to get there. And the laws of physics didn't change. But how humans understood them and what they understood them to be did change uh, because of that moment. So good. All right. Well, Sterling, we like to do a little soapbox at the end of each of yeah. our podcasts. Hit us with something really good uh, that you're that you're on. Uh, how do you mean? Like where people can find me? Oh, or what? No, no. Soapbox moment. Something from you. Uh, something challenging us. Maybe about. Uh, what you've learned through hunting discomfort, maybe something that you've been learning doing all the interviews, something about influential you, whatever you want. Yeah. Well, I, I think the biggest part of discomfort is, uh, again, discomfort's not the point. 
it, it's simply access to something greater. And I, I love this Carl Jung quote I, I found and I used in the book. He says, uh, condemnation does not liberate. You know, speaking poorly about not having enough time, not enough money, not enough things, resources, whatever it, whatever it is, doesn't liberate you from those things. It actually oppresses you. So when you can not only go into discomfort, but surrender to it, entirely new worlds open up for you to start taking action. And, you know, like the book has many examples of there's a lot of great results that go with it. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Sterling Hawkins, for being on our podcast this week. You can go find his book, Hunting Discomfort, everywhere. Go get it now. Don't wait. You want it. The only discomfort you're going to feel is the 13, 20 bucks leaving your bank account, but it'll be fine. You'll be okay. You'll you be got fine. it. Thanks for that, Josh. <laughs> Sterling, thank you so much. We're so glad you're here. And uh, I enjoyed the book tremendously. I'm going to go do thank my you. Amazon right now. So I am looking forward to our next week as next week. We are really excited because we will have Meredith Hart, the economic development manager for the city of Ventura, California, and how she learned to wield the lever of influence known as authority. Thank you so much for joining us today. Each week, we stream live on our website, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this podcast, won't you share it with others? You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you get your podcasts. Don't be shy. Give it a rating or review. We want to know what you think. You can also check out our show notes for links to connect with our guests, plus links to websites, books, or special downloads we talked about on today's episode. This podcast is made possible by the Influential You staff, mentors, and members all around the world. Special thanks to our executive producer, Tyson Crandall, with video and sound by Michael Teehee and Daryl Anderley. The Influential You podcast is produced by Influence Ecology LLC in Ventura, California, and this episode was recorded on June 29th, 2022. The podcast theme is by Chris Stanging and titled A Fast Train to Everywhere. And if you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment go to iTunes or your podcast app and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know. A special thanks to Sterling Hawkins. We couldn't have done it without you. And thank you so much for being a part of this today. We'll see you next week.